You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast. I'm very pleased this week to be joined by Dame Hermione Lee, um, whose biography of Tom Stoppard, Tom Stoppard Life, is out in paperback now. Hermione, welcome. Thank you. Can I ask what first sort of attracted you to Tom Stoppard as a subject? I I had always enormously uh, liked and admired and enjoyed his plays, but I had absolutely no intention of writing his life. But as it happened, he asked me in a in a quite sort of offhand way. We'd been having a conversation. We'd been having a sort of jokey conversation about biography. I knew him a little bit, but not very well. And out of that conversation, uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in 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 writing his his life. Uh, And I said, yes, absolutely immediately without pausing for thought, because it's not the sort of thing you would say no to. And then two seconds later, I thought, my God, uh, what have I done? This is a living person, which I had never done before. No, this is a playwright. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a theatre person, as it were, although I love the the theatre. And and also as a man, um, and my big books had all been about women writers before then. So there were a whole set of challenges, which were, which turned out to be extremely interesting. Yeah, I mean, you you do say you know rather belfully both towards the beginning and towards the end of your book, seeded throughout Stoppard's work, is a is a very series of very salty remarks about biographer critics. I mean, was that something you came upon after doing your primary research? I mean, <laughs> no, I knew about that already because, of course, I'd seen um, Invention of Love, for instance, where Oscar Wilde is made by Stoppard to say some very Wildean, stroke Stoppardian things about biography. There's also the wonderful play called Indian Ink or In the Native State, depending on whether it's radio or stage, in which there's a sort of frightful nitpicking editor would-be biographer who is constantly barking up the wrong tree in fact there's a dog barking up a tree at one point just to just to tell you that you know he's always he's always getting the wrong end of the stick and Arcadia of course has a ghastly show-off Don uh, Telly Don as they were then known Bernard who who is also makes catastrophic errors in his desire to get a sensational scoop about Byron so he's very funny about biography and he's very scathing about biography and he has often talked about that at the same time he is of course very interested in putting real historical figures into his own play so there's a really fascinating standoff between whether you get more truth of a life by writing it as I do with lots of footnotes and everything being credited and you know all your evidence being checked and so on or whether you can make up a life and actually get to the truth of that life more closely through fiction through fictional drama. Yeah. Why, why do you think he wanted you to do it? Was it just a recognition it was going to happen and that he'd rather have someone he trusted? Yes, I think it's partly that. I think people were coming at him. There had already been actually a, a, a sort of unsolicited life by 
perfectly okay by a Canadian academic who hadn't talked to him really. I think he had one conversation with him. And various other people were saying, can I write your biography? He was turning 80. Um, He'd remarried, he was moving, he was sorting papers. And I think it was part part of a sort of tidying up process. I think he also wanted someone who was known as a a literary biographer rather than as a sort of theatre person. He didn't want to be slotted into a sort of history of 20th and 21st century theatre. I think he wanted someone who would read the plays as as texts as well as, as events, to use his turn of phrase. So it was a mixture of those things. That's interesting you say he wants someone who'd read the plays as text rather than events, because a big theme of your book is that he absolutely regarded these plays as events rather than text. That's why I said it, yes, and you rightly picked that up. Um, And one of the fascinating things about working on him and with him was to, for instance, see him in rehearsal uh, and to see how true that is, that he, he does... He's not closed off, he's not rigid about plays which will have taken him scrupulous days to write one sentence and he will have absolutely perfected the language of, of that speech. And then when he's in the room with the actors and they say, I need another line to give myself time to get to the door, he'll he'll put in another line, you know, there and there. He doesn't want other people changing the text, but he is willing to. But I think he also, as you know, values good language. He He puts a moral value on the best possible language and the truest possible language and the sharpest possible language. And so I think he, yeah, I think he was pleased to think that his actual language would fall into the hands of someone who, who is interested in, in, you know, in reading. Now, Stoppard as a playwright, I mean, for, for many of us who, who kind of, you know, maybe, maybe don't have an encyclopedic recollection of his career, there's this sense that Rosencrantz and Gilderstern sort of more or less dropped out of the sky and kind of made him overnight, which reputationally it did. Extraordinary how much came before that, though. Yes, that's one of the things that amazed and fascinated me the most, that there were, you know, a good 10 years of hard graft. Once he, I mean, he was a, a a very young journalist in Bristol. He didn't uh, he didn't do A-levels, he didn't go to university, he just went off at the age of 17 and got a job as a journalist. And uh, he did all kinds of journalism, arts journalism, film, theatre reviews, um, commentary pages, you know, lots and lots of different kinds of journalism, cut his teeth on it, loved it. And all the time he was he was watching the world and thinking, I really want to be a writer. And at that time, in the late 50s, early 60s, the kind of exciting thing, the glamorous thing to do was to be a playwright rather than to be a novelist. He did write a novel, which is deservedly forgotten, I think. But... Uh, Lord Malquist and Mr Moon. Yes, it's a very sort of eccentric, surreal, curious phenomenon. I quite like it, actually, but it's, 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 not, it's not the most inviting of his works. He thought that it was going to be a huge success, and he thought his play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstone, was probably not going to be a great success, and they came out more or less in the same week. So... <laughs> <laughs> he got that wrong. Yes, he's trying his hand as everything. And he decided he made a big decision to stop being a full-time journalist and to go freelance and to write television plays, radio plays, one actors, all kinds of possibilities. And it was at a time when radio and television 
were wonderful venues for experimental writing, actually. You, you really could. There's a wonderful radio producer called John Tidyman, alas, now dead, uh, who encouraged Stoppard in his career as a, radio, a writer for radio. He loved radio because you, with a radio play, you could start a million years ago, scene one, scene two, a week later. It's very, very congenial to Stoppard's kind of way of jumping about. So you're right, there's a huge amount going on and Rosencrantz itself took a long time in the making and, and had several false starts. I mean, it started as Rosencrantz and Guildenstone at the court of King Lear and went on through various evolutions and it was a matter, almost a matter of luck. You, you'll, you'll know, you know, the famous story about it being put on in Edinburgh by a rather sort of mixed crew of Oxford undergraduates with a sort of rather hopeless director and getting terrible reviews, you know, from plays like The Scotsman saying, what's it all about, Tom, you know, and this kind of thing. And then Ronald Bryden spotting it uh, and writing a lead review and saying, you know, fantastic, new promise, brilliant. And Kenneth Tynan, then the dramaturge at The National, picking this up and immediately calling him in. And from then on, there it went. Now, of his influences... You know, you, you talk early on about how he's, you know, absolutely sort of enthralled by, you know, Beckett and T.S. Eliot, which are, are maybe things that, you know, one would expect. But he's also absolutely in love with Hemingway. Yes. Which it's is really unexpected, isn't it? It is. And it goes on all through his life. And he he's a he's a big book collector as well. And he collected Hemingway and used to go to Hemingway conferences and got to know the sort of Hemingway people. Yes, I th- I think he, I think he has a a real passion for the way in which Hemingway's style is so full of feeling and emotion and passion and yet so withheld and restrained and controlled and I think he loved that and I think he also saw a sort of moral I mean Hemingway may not have been a particularly moral person in his own life but there's a sort of morality of behavior in the stories uh, which is often to do with work and sort of truth to oneself and I think Stoppard is moved by that. As the plays go on you there's an extraordinary thing he seems to kind of recycle for instance the names of characters, you get these these sort of moons and hounds and blares going through all the place. Why why is that? Do you think are they avatars of the same character, or does he just like certain names? Yes, it doesn't go on forever. I think that's very much a sort of early earlyish thing when he's kind of trying out his trademarks. But it goes, I think, with if you think of the two critics in the real Inspector Howard, or if you think of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or if you think of the two. Hausmans, the old and the young Hausman in The Invention of Love, or the twins in Hapgood, you over and over again get these sort of doubles that he likes to play with. And he is he is very interested in that sense of split split people or double identities. And also people who can't actually remember their own names. I mean, the, one, of the great, one of the great running jokes of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, of course, is that they never know who, who's being spoken to and they always look at each other to see whether they're Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. <laughs> they're still getting it wrong when they die at the end. You know? And, there is, you know, I, I, I am not the kind of biographer that likes to do sort of elementary psychoanalysis because I'm not a psychoanalyst. But there is clearly some relationship here to a person who was born, Thomas Stroessler, in Zlin 
1937, left that country because of the Nazis, left Singapore where his father was killed, went to India with his mother and his brother, you know, was taught in English in India, arrived in England at the age of eight, became at that point, because his mother had remarried Ken Stoppard, became Tom Stoppard at the age of eight. And as he put it, put on Englishness like a coat. You know, and so there are these people who've lost their homeland or they've lost their their name or they can't remember their name or they're somehow in exile or can't find their way home. I'm making him sound serious because I think he is a deeply feeling and serious playwright as well as a wonderfully funny and dazzlingly entertaining one. But that sense of those those matching names, Moon and Boot or whatever it is, yeah. goes on through, I think. Yes, do you, I mean, that is another of the, the big themes of the book, seems to me, that, as you say at one point, wearily, you know, ever since the 1980s, people were writing headlines saying, at last it shows Tom Stoppard has a heart, or, you know, Tom Stoppard gets engaged. I mean, your thesis, as I understand it, is that there's something deeply emotional, and, you know, well, I suppose there's two two aspects that he's he's often scattered on, that he wasn't politically engaged, at least in the first half of his career, and that he wasn't able to access more than, than jokes and intellects. Sort of to take them separately. I mean, I think yeah. you've, you've rightly pointed to the note of slight exasperation or weariness in my voice where, where I kept on finding these reviews. You get it with The Real Thing. You get it with Arcadia. You even get it again with Leopoldstadt last year. You know, ah, finally we discover that Tom Stoppard is, has a heart, you know, is an emotional and feeling player. And it's perfectly clear, I think, Different productions do this in different ways, obviously, but it's clear that there is deep, deep feeling in a play like Rosencrantz, where these two characters are completely bewildered. Like all of us, we don't know what we're here for. You know, we have to pass the time. We have to make the best of what we're given. And he does that marvellously, I think. And, and then in Jumpers, I was very struck by the fact that Jumpers coincide so closely with the breakup of his first marriage and the very unhappy story of his his first wife's increasing alcoholism and and breakdown and and you know you see that I think in that I mean Jumpers of course is a firework of brilliant speech making and brilliant situational comedy but it's also a painful painful play about a marriage breaking up Uh, and so yes I feel I feel that's been there all the way through you have that. There's a lovely quote that I think you quote Stoppard quoting, and I can't remember who, about the idea of grief. Oh yes, being yes. something visible like a carp under the surface of a pond. It's from a play by James Saunders called "Next Time I'll Sing to You." Now I think forgotten, but not forgotten by Stoppard, for whom this man was a mentor and also a great influence. I think, and it's the sentences there lies behind everything a certain quality which we may call grief. And I was very struck by the fact that he uses that in a spoof documentary that was made about him called Tom Stoppard Doesn't Know in 1972. And he uses it again in a lecture that I saw him give in Oxford just about four years ago, where he was quoting that again. So it stayed with him. It is a kind of mantra, I think. Yeah, that, that Tom Stoppard Doesn't Know, that sense of which goes with the doubleness that he's able to see, obviously, a great dramatist virtue every side of of an argument. Did that change in the course of his life? I mean, do you see him as, as 
starting to nail his colours down. This maybe leads into a discussion about his politics. but This takes us back to the political question. I think political with a small p. But yes, there was a, there was a tremendous sense of him in the first, I suppose, ten years of his major career as being a sort of dandy, a heartless dandy. And this was encouraged by Kentinen, who wrote a big piece about him in the New Yorker called Withdrawing with Style from the Chaos, which is actually a quote from Lord Malquist and Mr Moon, that, that novel. Uh, and this was in the late 70s, by which time that that idea of him as not having anything to do with the, the political world and being, above all, a, a man of language, was was way out of date already, because by that time he'd become involved with his his major cause, really, which was Eastern Europe and the the oppressions of the communist regime, both in Soviet Russia and also in, in what was then Czechoslovakia. And he became very involved in various ways, through pen and through Index on Censorship and through his own visits um, and through doing a lot for, for instance, Soviet refuseniks wanting to come out of... Russia, but also in plays such as, wonderful plays, I think, such as Professional Foul, as a television play about the, the moral quandary of the philosopher who finds he's got to take a side when he gets to a place where free speech is not a given. Or Every Good Boy Deserves Favour, which is about political prisoners, hospi- hospitalised prisoners of conscience in, in Soviet Russia. So, yes, this is very much part of his friendship with Václav Havel, who, if you're talking about alter egos and doubles, you know, I, I'm sort of, I suggest in the book that, that, that the big double figure for him all the way through, actually, is Havel. You know, what would, what would Stoppard have done if he had found himself as a playwright, as a comic playwright, in the position of being a, yeah, a silenced a silenced writer and would he, you know how would how brave would he have been and he constantly there's marvelous interesting self-examination about that i think all the way through so it's not surprising given his the fact that he escaped from nazism and then did not go back to czechoslovakia and grow up under uh, the communist regime in the 1940s and 50s and 60s that is no, it's no surprise that his natural temperamental affinity was not with the left-wing unions, was not with, as it were, the left-wing playwrights of the royal court, who couldn't give Stoppard the time of day, really. And in the 80s, he's quite a strong, you know, articulate supporter of Thatcher and Thatcherism. He's He writes a play which is very hostile to the the force of the print unions um, in the late 70s, night, night and day. And I think he says himself that he's become, as it were, increasingly left-wing, if that's the right word, as, as, as time goes by. And I think his feeling about the print unions, for instance, has changed tremendously in terms of the Leveson inquiry and the, you know, the effect of individual moguls on the British press but I think he all the way through the line in every good boy deserves favour that the father says to his son one and one is always two that's the heart of it you know that he he believes in systems like the English democratic system about which he has fears and anxieties but systems in which you can speak your mind and it is possible to speak the truth the subsense isn't that 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 
language is at the heart of his politics. I mean that, yeah. you know, which weirdly seems to connect him almost with with Pinter, though they were very different politically. That sort of, you know, yeah, the Pinter and Mountain so... language and Dog's Hamlet would connect. Very different, very different kinds of, of playwrights. But yes, and interesting that they reach across, as you say, to a kind of parallel, even though their politics were so completely diametrically opposed. But there's also, I think, in Stoppard, and it comes up in a lot of plays, including in The Real Thing, perhaps pronouncedly in The Real Thing, which is this phrase, public postures have the configuration of private derangement. It's, it's a complicated concept, but this is the idea that whatever your internal extremism is or whatever your internal neuroses are or your internal bigotry is going to somehow voice itself so politics does have to do with temperament and personality but of course one of the things that's so amazing about him I think is as you said earlier on in this conversation that he's so good at making the case for the opposition you know, Zara in Jumpers, I'm sorry, Zara in Travesties. Turgenev in, in The Coast of Utopia is a wonderful character and somebody says to him at one point, well, uh, what is, you know, do you have a view on this? What view do you take on this? And he says, I, I take every possible side. And in his plays, that's what Stoppard does. He takes every possible side. Yeah, so I think at one point I think you say, or he admits to slightly loading the dice in Travesties. Yeah, not half. <laughs> it's, it's it's Joyce who pulls the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah, one of those intriguing things about, I mean, the, the doubleness, and I don't know whether it was something, it's not something you kind of are very explicit about, but there is a sense that some of these plays almost themselves fall into pairs. You know, I think you, you say, like, Galileo is a sort of, it connects to jumpers and, you know, artist descending a staircase and every good boy have a have a kind of connection and I think Ahab Good and Arcadia as well. I mean, do you think that's that's him having a sort of second bite at the cherry or just these it's are the themes? It's really of- interesting. I haven't thought of, I hadn't thought about it as a sort of question like that. I suppose I had noticed it as I'd gone along. I tend not to make theories when I'm writing a biography. I, I've you know I'm I think Temperamentally, I'm probably slightly resistant to saying, oh, here's something that he keeps doing. Let's let's track it through. But I think you're right, actually. There are these there are these pairings and there are returns to think. I was struck the other day thinking about Leopoldstadt, how to have time zones going through. I mean, Leopoldstadt's a play that runs from the turn of the 20th century through to the mid 20th century in scenes which jump from one time zone to the next and shows the fate of this Viennese Jewish assimilated Jewish family and what happens to it and at the beginning the stage is full of people and by the end there are only three people left in the 1955 scene and I thought though the plays couldn't be more different in a way that's exactly what he did in Arcadia to have to have that one room and to see those times jumping. He does the time jumps in a different way, but to have the times jumping through and see this, this and also see this one family. So although they're very remote in other ways, he does, yeah, he does like to use things again, I think, in a different way. <coughs> he, he's funny about saying he doesn't, he's not very good at starting things from scratch, that so many of these plays are riffs on or departures from or developments of 
other players. Does that bug him, do you think, or is that just... I think it has bugged him. I mean, he would ruefully, he would often ruefully say, you know, I've got to get an idea from someone else and I can never get an idea from myself. So that when someone said to him, did you notice that Tristan Zara and James Joyce and Lenin were all in Trieste at the same... Uh, sorry, were, <laughs> did you notice they were all in Zurich? at the same time you know that's that's a key for him that gets him that gets him going and he was very proud of the real thing as being a play whose idea he'd invented (laughs) himself (laughs) but it's a joke that he has I mean it's the use that he makes of these things which is what is so extraordinary I think I think to be (laughs) fair to you as well you you say you know, who's proud of the real things the play invented, however, and then you've got at least two paragraphs of sort of things it slightly borrows from. In relation to Leopoldstadt, that's, it's very interesting because this, this is an invented family, this Viennese, this wealthy assimilated Viennese Jewish family who discover in 1939 that they count as Jews and that's all they count as. Uh, and that is... That is from the, the uh, life of uh, a biography of the Wittgenstein family who had that exact same discovery. And in order to write Leopoldstadt, which he was at pain, although it's a, in a way an autobiographical play, he was at pains to remove it from the story of his own family. These are not, you know, middle-class Jews from Zlin. This is another story altogether. But in order to write that play, he read enormously in the enormous literature of the Holocaust and the history of Vienna and the history of Jews in Middle Europe and so on. So so that's not a play which is based on another person's idea at all. It's fundamentally based on his own life story, rather rather occludedly. But it does draw on huge amounts of research, and he will do that always. He will read enormously for a play like Invention of Love. For instance, he read for five years before he wrote the play. Uh, one of the, I mean, that question of his Jewishness, the sort of a, one of the great marmalade droppers of the story is that, you know, he was, what, in his 60s or 70s before he discovered that he was Jewish? That's sort of importantly not quite right. And I, and I hope the book doesn't give that, doesn't give that impression. He had, because his mother really badly wanted to put the past behind her and was, and you know, and her husband, her English husband turned out to be somewhat anti-Semitic and xenophobic and that was unfortunate. And so she didn't speak Czech at home and she didn't talk to the boys about their childhood. And when he, w- he would say, Mum, were we Jewish? She would go, Tusk, she'd go, Tusk. And he knew what that meant. It was, A, I don't want to think about this and B, she never thought of herself as Jewish. She was a completely secular person. Jews to her were the people, Orthodox Jews that she would see in Zlin wearing the full gear. And as happened to many people at that time, it was Hitler who made her a Jew. Otherwise, she would have been not thinking about it very much. So she hid it and he didn't ask questions in order to oblige her. And it was only in, yeah, actually in 1993 when he learnt about his family history. He knew that his father was Jewish. I mean, obviously, that's why they'd they'd left. He didn't know much about his mother, and what he didn't know was that many members of her family were killed in the Holocaust, and that was what he found out very late in life, 
the full extent, as it were, of her Jewishness and therefore his Jewishness and the, and the family story. And he, t he had a piece in a magazine called Talk in the, in the 19, late 1990s. This was Judy Brown's very glossy and glamorous thing, wasn't it? Now long forgotten. Of all the, um, of all the things... You know, it seems very Stoppardian that it's in Talk magazine that he's... Isn't it about. just that, that there was a sort of, yeah, that, that uh, there was a piece about the Clintons' marriage and it was all super glossy. And then there's this tremendously important and serious piece by Stoppard about his family history. And he didn't publish it until after his mother uh, had died. He knew she wouldn't have wanted him to do that. And there is a scene in that piece where he's asking this cousin of his who... He met and he said, um, were we Jewish? Meaning, were we completely Jewish? And she says, of course you were Jewish. And she draws the family tree on a napkin in a restaurant where they've met at the National Theatre. And then she tells him what happened to all the people in the family. Auschwitz, Terezin. And that exchange, which he publishes in that piece, becomes the last scene of Leopoldstadt. So you can see how long that takes to turn it turn into a drama, into a play. Also, I mean, you know, you mentioned Ken Stoppard, who gives him his name. There's this extraordinary moment where, practically at his mother's funeral, I think it may actually be at his mother's funeral, Ken Stoppard says, right, you can stop using my name now. It's a very strange moment, and it happens actually just after his mother has died. They've taken her to hospital. They didn't expect her to die, and she did. She died very soon after going into hospital, and they come back to the house, and as they're getting out of the car, Ken Stoppard says, I don't want you to use my surname anymore. And Peter, the brother who talked to me about this also, is a, is a, a witness of this. And he said that it, Tom Stoppard dealt with it rather sort of rationally by writing him a, a letter and saying, well, look, I, I, I write plays, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm known, so I can't really change my surname at this point. And Stoppard, I think, understood it as part of his stepfather, he always called him his father, but his stepfather's hostility to, to Jews and to foreigners, and the fact that Stoppard had been very active, for instance, in supporting Soviet Jewish refuseniks, and his stepfather didn't like that. But it, yes, it's an extraordinary moment of, of anti-Semitism in Stoppard's life, which I don't think he's encountered very much. But particularly from his father or, or stepfather, I mean, there are these sort of moments where, I mean, particularly him talking about learning about his real, his biological father's death, and he says it kind of registered, but it didn't hit him emotionally at all. I wonder, was his stepfather, who obviously spent a lot of time essentially rejecting him and keeping it arm's length, how did he respond to his stepfather emotionally? I mean, we know he was hugely close to his mother, but did he somehow section off his feelings for Ken, or did he feel rejected and I, hurt? I, I, sense I, of it? A, lot of the, a lot of this I don't know. You know, I only know as much as I can know, and I don't want to make up anything else. I'm struck by the fact that he left home as soon as he possibly could. But he went back and he has good relations, particularly with his half-sister, because uh, his mother had two, two children by her second marriage. And that was, that was all fine. But I am struck by a play called Enter a Free Man, which started life as Walk on the Water, which has a sort of tremendously blimpish rather useless, bombastic 
Anglophile character at its centre, who I suspect is quite strongly based on uh, on Ken Stoppard. Were, were there sort of, I mean, when you, obviously you had the opportunity to ask Tom himself about his relations and his personal life and his, did, is he evasive on that stuff? Is he, because he has this, this sense all through the book of, of him being someone who's enormously charming and enormously warm and also sort of guarded. I mean, did you find there were sort of patches where there were no goes? It's it's such a good question about writing about a living person. You you know, it's extraordinary to have that kind of access where over a period of about six years, I suppose I had maybe a dozen very long conversations with him, sometimes lasting over a weekend, as it were. Nothing was off limits. He he didn't reject any questions. But there were certain there were clearly things that he was much more interested in talking about than other things. And I'm sure there were times when I was being held at bay, even if I didn't notice it at, at the time. And he he didn't enjoy it. I mean I think he I think he sort of thought, you know, okay, I've asked her to do it, she's going to do it. It's my duty now to do what I said I would do, which is to give her access. And he gave me some astonishing materials to read, including the weekly letters that he wrote to his mother between the years 1948 and 1996. I mean, that's an astonishing, astonishing resource, and I use those all the way through. Well, I think only Philip Larkin and John Berryman managed that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It took a while for those letters to land in my lap and I think I had to sort of earn some trust and, you know, it didn't all arrive at once. But I think in the end he decided... I think he, I think initially he was rather sort of guarded about the whole process and probably wished he hadn't set it in train. And then I think he got used to the fact that it was happening and that I was sort of doggedly getting on with it. And I think he thought, oh, well, let's give her money what she needs, you know. So, and basically he was, you know, unlike Beckett, who said to his first biographer, I will neither help nor hinder. Yeah. He, he did help and he didn't hinder. But it was interesting talking to him. I often felt that I should be having tremendously high-level intellectual, philosophical conversations with this great brain, you know, and I often thought we should be talking about the meaning of consciousness or, you know. What he really wanted to talk about were things like what, what kind of shoes he wore in the 1960s or what happened in a production where it turned out to be three and a half minutes too long in the second act and how you would get that back down to... <laughs> <laughs> so there were there were tremendous numbers of times when I would think, goodness, I'm having this conversation um, with him, which is very technical or practical or even mundane. When I expected to be having sort of high level, high level conversations about abstract thinking, he's very pragmatic, isn't he? He's a pragmatist. He's a pragmatist of the theatre, and he's quite a pragmatist. He's he's got a very good. He's got an admirable policy of life, I think. It's not a policy, but he's he's sort of calm and stoic and he doesn't make a fuss about things. I mean, he can be quite steely, I think, especially, you know, when he's play or lines he's written for a film. You know, there's a lot of very steely correspondence with movie producers, for instance, that I found in the archive. And he can be fierce, but he's he doesn't... He doesn't make a fuss. He takes things as they come. There's a kind of stoicism, I think. And who knows, maybe that comes out of his early life. I mean, that's steeliness. You, that's, 
when his first marriage is coming to an end, there is a, a sort of moment where I think he writes to somebody, doesn't he? And he says, you know, there it is. I've only got one life and I won't sacrifice myself. And that comes out of, I mean, unlike other famous writers one can think of who've blithely gone off and left their person, you know, in a ruthless manner. I mean, we can all think of examples of great writers who are not very nice people. Actually, he is a decent person, fundamentally a very decent person, I think. And that, that position had been arrived at after a great deal of pain and difficulty. And, you know, there were there were two small children involved so it was very hard yeah he's it's, it's speaking of those small children one of the things you say is he's he wrote a sort of journal which was essentially a series of letters to his youngest son ed did you get access to that yes that's quoted quite a bit you'll see is, in, yeah. in the book and uh, yes again that that took a little time uh, I was quite was sort of well into the research and had started writing before the letters and the journal arrived but when they did arrive of course it was an incredible bonus and one of the interesting things about the journal to Ed um, who of course became the, the the theatrical person of the family became became a, an actor who's who was in the first version of the production of Leopoldstadt, was that he's very outspoken about his politics, actually, in that journal. And there's there's a lot about his feelings, about, for instance, about Havel. Most of the, the material that I put in the book about his feelings about what was happening in Czechoslovakia are drawn, actually, from that journal. So that was a very rich source. He's less... He's not intimate about what's going on in his marriage because he's writing to the son of that marriage so just as with his letters to his mother he doesn't want to worry her so he's not telling her details about anything that might be going on in the private life he just wants her to know he's okay yes you mentioned sort of the, the politics to go go up with you one of it's a sort of tiny line but during the Rushdie affair he says he doesn't think of free speech he says it's important to me but it's not a fundamental right how does he arrive at that position? I'm quite surprised because one thinks, you know, of Stoppard as someone whose activism has largely been about free speech. Yeah. And it surprised me too, and I, I suppose, I, I suppose what he's talking about is that you must always. It's a, it's the Berlinian position. I think it's Isaiah Berlin speaking behind him, and he's very influenced by by Isaiah Berlin. You can see that in Coast of Utopia, but it's the idea that it's all very well to talk about one's own liberal right to freedom, but you have always to put it in the context of the other person's right or the context for those rights. And it may turn out that your rights do not prevail over the other person's. And of course that, you know, it's a catch-22. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to say that. But I, I, think I, I think I know why he said that at, at the time. Uh, and it's part of the whole raging debate around the fatwa, which of course led on to so many things we didn't foresee at, at the time, which is that in order to maintain the right of a person to speak out, particularly within a fictional work, one has to understand and give due respect to the positions of other people. Did you feel at the end that you'd, you'd kind of got him or understood him? I'd hate to say no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the book I think the book gives a does give a full and 
and quite thorough and fair picture of the kind of person he is in the different ways that he inhabits this world, socially, politically, creatively, domestically. I think that this is a person of great charm and great reserve. You might even oddly call him a shy person. He's extremely gregarious and he knows a million people and he's immensely outgoing to people and he's good at friendship and he's loyal. But fundamentally, he likes to be in a room on his own writing something. I should maybe I end by just asking you to do what you asked a lot of his friends to do. Is Can you sum him up in three words? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to read the book. <laughs> read the book, yes. Well, there are many more than three words, but they're very terrific words. Tom Stoppard, A Life is out in paperback now. Hermione Lee, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk